Hello. Hello. And thanks for downloading this episode 43 yeah. of the Cast Iron Fit podcast. This is when we start getting busy again as we're chatting to all manner of people for the Brighton Fringe, which starts this week. And so uh, we are definitely going to be chatting to loads of people uh, as the um, city becomes a busy, frenzied pot of... Of theatre and dance and... Overpriced Ratworths. And all but very tasty bratwurst. Yes, there's, you know, if you look hard enough, there'll be a vegan bratwurst. <gasps> I think there is, I'm yeah. I'm not even sure that I'm pronouncing the word bratwurst correctly. I think you're sort of doing an attempt at it, so yeah. that's fine. I mean, I think that's all, that's what's been my best reviews. Of, at least you tried. At least you tried. Yeah. There's people that try, yeah. and there's people that don't try. No. And you're definitely a trier. I definitely try people's. Patience? No. Yeah. We, this episode, are talking to Tim Cook. We are. Of Broken Silence Theatre. Yeah. Uh, Largely about his upcoming play, Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. and uh, working in the fringe industry. And we were talking about his crowdfunder as well. Yes, uh, crowdfunder, which uh, you should uh, have a look at if you want to um, support uh, fringe theatre. Yeah, I thought I saw a moth, but I didn't. It's fine. I don't think our listeners can know, see that. No, or, no, or, or I I realised that whilst you were talking, I was my eyes were darting around the room. You do that a lot, wherever we are. Yeah, I'm always on the lookout. Yeah. Always, always for be an, ready. For another bratwurst. For another bratwurst. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. I think it's time we spoke to Mr Tim Cook. Yeah. Do you yeah. listen? Yeah. Good. Let's do that. So yeah, we're we're gearing up towards the uh, Brighton Fringe. Uh, with all that it entails, the the new venues are being built, and our Twitter and Facebook feeds are all full of excited and terrified chatter about you know woodship going down for the Warren and um, uh, the new venues, brand new venues for Sweet Venues, uh, which will be at Sweet Works in the Lanes. Uh, so all manner of things are, are being exciting. We are in this episode, 43, episode 43 of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. We're talking to um, Tim Cook, which I imagine in our sort of uh, the blurb when we say t- Tim Cook, that might get us a few more listeners because, um, Tim, you happen to, you, as you may already know, you uh, share the name with the CEO of Apple. Uh, um, yes. And, I, and I'm quite prepared to take that mistaken, because yeah. if, if they've... Um, We've now said that you're not the uh, CEO of Apple, but no, if any listeners think they still want to step not. in for the next hour, um, yeah, I could there's no false you... advertising. No, absolutely not. It is my real name. Yeah. I'm not using it for advertising purposes. No. It hasn't actually come in as handy as you'd think no. as yet. Wait, no. I'm waiting for that moment. Sponsorship, surely. Sponsorship, yeah. That is, that's the... Free upgrade at the very least. Yeah, you, you, you would hope so. My Mac is getting on a bit, yeah, so yeah. I would appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we might indeed speak about um, manners of raising funds a bit later mm. in, in our in our chat, but um, we should talk a little bit about uh, broken silence. Mm. Um, in the context of this conversation, what is broken silence? Um, it's a theatre company essentially, and it's been going for around sort of five years. As a company, I started after graduating from drama school, and it's kind of it's a it's a kind of a constantly evolving thing so yeah. we're sort of yeah we've been going for that length of time but i feel like right now we're in a very good place and we've sort of there's there's sort of seven or eight of us that are kind of work on projects and so 
it's always kind of led by the by the people um and so we are sort of seven or eight people that really enjoy working together so if we're looking for um, a catalogue of theatre companies uh what is the definition for your theatre company what type of theatre company is it i think so we specialize in new writing which again is is very very broad and sort of historically if you look at our back catalogue it's been led by two playwrights so far, which is myself and Paul McCauley, who's another uh, local theatre maker. Indeed, we've had him on the podcast yeah. before, yeah. Yeah, and, and a, just a brilliant creative writer and director. And and so it was, it was init- initially it started to kind of, as a means of putting on our own work, yeah. like I think a lot of theatre companies do and I then couldn't possibly comment <laughs> what no it was not an accusation <laughs> um and I think we, we started to find a way of working with a much broader range of writers and it sounds like a bit of a kind of a lame kind of backtracking to your question but it's it's always going to be led by the writers yeah rather than I think this is a, de- a deliberate decision it wasn't I didn't want to create a manifesto or some really specific guidelines about the kind of work we do. It was always, well, let's just see what you know what excites us in that given moment. Whatever ideas you, what those writers have yeah. at any given time. I just before you, um, before we started, I was um, clearing out my um, laptop or um, files and so on. So my files, and I was finding bits of work in, in progress that I'd almost forgotten about that were, you know, I'd last worked in them about eight months back and whatever. Oh, that was a thing that started well. And I was being to read them and uh, not with any sense of self-consciousness going, this this seems to be quite good, actually. I'm quite enjoying this. Uh, Do you ever have that sort of thing of finding work in progress that got abandoned and then when you come back to it a bit later, you think, oh, actually, I need to get back into this. That I've written myself? Yeah. Um... Or yes. do you always finish a damn thing? Uh, no, no, definitely not. And I think it usually there's a reason why you kind of don't follow it through. Yeah. And normally I'd ne- I don't go back to things because, you know, as I said, there's a reason and and I kind of tend to leave things. But I have done in the past and we, we took a show. I think there was a gap of around about sort of six, six years, yeah. five, six years. And actually, it, it ended up not doing very well. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm not blaming it on, on sort of, on picking it up again, but I think there was something about it ended up becoming half the thing that it was six years ago yeah. and half the new thing. Um, but that's just, that's just, that was just one particular example. Essentially, you're, you're a different person mm. six years later. You have different uh, distractions, you have different beliefs, yeah, and then also you're you know you become a different writer. I think, I I do think that that you, you know you'd hope that there's an evolution in the yeah. sort of the writing process, and I was sort of relying on you know I was thinking you know I can shape this into the writer that I am now. Yeah, but that's that's I think easier said than done in some cases. Having said that, if you if you look at the body of work of writer, the most obvious one to to point a cliche at, even if that cliche is not accurate, is someone like Pinter where uh, Pinter played from the 80s, uh, uh, 90s, or indeed the late 50s, 60s. The DNA is still mm. existent within all those plays. Um, if we were comparing, if we were comparing, what I'm going to say, cooking plays, <laughs> um, 
is there stuff that you recognise that are themes or things that you are distracted and interested by in a, a work 10 years ago and now? Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, and it's a sort of, it's a really interesting sort of thing to look at, you know, in, in sort of, you know, writers like Pinter. Yeah. And I think, you know, the same is kind of true in that there's, there's an element of the DNA of the writer that is there. Yeah. So I think I, I try to write about very different things with each play because I, that's my way of challenging myself. Yeah. as a writer but then I think if you look to them there'd be this underlying you know all the dialogue would be of a similar kind of nature in terms of the the rhythm yes um and then you know although the themes might change I think the thing that I'm I've always been drawn to is sort of communication and how in a kind of ironic sense that actually words often aren't enough yeah kind of I just think they're sort of they're kind of weak at, I mean, they can be weak and they can be powerful, they can be many things, but often they're an ineffective form of communicating what you want. And and so if you look at that through the characters of a play that you, you know, you're trying to write, then then it's often about the, all, all those things that aren't, aren't kind of being said. Sure. It, there's no such thing as an average work, working writing day, but what is your average working writing day? Um, I'd say, I'd say it, it, I write very quickly, Yeah. but I, I say the ratio of kind of like browsing the internet to actually writing. Yeah. So I'll think, okay, I, that's an, a six hour, eight hour writing day. Actually, I've only sort of written for about 45 minutes yeah. of that and your right household tasks are on point and netflix is done um yeah yeah i mean i i think i think that's productive i yeah. think that is, is you know well i think if you set a page limit you know sort of say okay i want to complete five five pages today and you give yourself the day then you know that other time i i could be you know googling on bbc sport or sure. wherever but actually i could be thinking about about what's going to come next. Yeah, because you need that headspace anyway. We're not, we're not making yeah. futile excuses. No, you actually do honestly, need we're that. not. It's... The headspace, you're not going to strap in for eight minutes, write necessarily a piece mm. of iconic work and then sign off after eight minutes and then no. go off and do something else. It does. It, it takes a long time to to sort of... It's the thought process and often before I sit down to write, I won't plan exhaustively. I don't, I'm not a, sort of a planner. Yeah. I don't like to lay it all out, but I will be thinking about it in a kind of, it sounds kind of lame, like a quite an abstract way yeah. for like a month or two without really writing anything down at all. And that's kind of what I need to kind of begin. So does that mean that you're ever caught out or surprised by the way that story ends. You, you might have a nebulous idea that, that you think, oh, I know that the you know, X characters are going to die or whatever, but mm. does it ever sort of, does the story escape you and go a different way from what you expected? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And that's, I think, that is, is kind of how I keep it interesting for myself. Um, for me, I tried early on in my kind of writing career to, to be very to write everything down, like every kind of scene by scene, um, and then I'd know where it was going, yeah. and I kind of found myself just not enjoying writing it, because I, yeah. I felt like I'd already done it, even though I sure. hadn't. 
Um, and so, and so now I can be surprised. I think I still like to have an idea of maybe where I'll end up. Yeah. That final moment, but how it gets there, I think, is then okay. Well, let's see, kind of what the characters are saying. You yeah. know, they can surprise me, yeah. and there's a kind of form of like, okay, they're their own separate entity. Yeah. Um, uh, how about you? Well, um, both really. I sort of um, sometimes I like to colour outside the edges so that I have. Um, a sense of oh scene one will have that scene nine will have this and scene 14 will have this and those are my sort of either set piece moments or the interesting moments and then a bit later i'll come in and color in the edges in the bridging gaps and then i'll realize that scene 14 actually now doesn't work and mm. i need to get rid of it and maybe i can save it for a different play or whatever um so i kind of try to do both i try to be a um a planner and be a bit more nebulous and um, certainly there have been ideas that or images that are sitting with me for a while that I don't know what I'm going to apply what story I'm going to apply that to yet but I know that I need that sequence in something mm. um, and occasionally I'm so fond of the sequence that I'll try and get it to work in whatever I'm working on at the moment and it's not appropriate it's not valid um, I do want to sort of um, latch onto a word that you mentioned earlier which I hope won't make you feel self-conscious because it's about the, uh, the the very element of being self-conscious. You use the word career. And I myself, I'm not... I mean, I've been writing for God knows how long, 10, 15 years, more, and had various things produced. And I'm still... And it's, I think it's quite a common thing with writers. Um, more so, perhaps, than actors, directors, anybody else. Um, with writers to claim, oh no, this is my job, this is my career. Um, for some people, this is what I put my passport. Um, although I think the um, the insurance policies are off yeah. the roof on that. Um, and you, and I, uh, I, I caveat this with, I don't want you to make, be self-conscious about this now that I'm badgering on about it, but you use the word mm. career in absolute confidence, no highlighting at all. Um, did that take an effort? Did that all... I think I think I yeah I use it quite broadly in the sense of all all of the theatre activity yeah that, that it's so it's not I think I think you're right but in in the sense that if you do just say as a writer which probably wasn't how I was referencing it but people are less likely to take ownership of that and I remember you know being in a on a writing course and and the the instructor kind of said you know who here sees is a, is a writer identifies yeah. as a writer no one put their hand yeah there. but by the same token if you're in an acting class <laughs> you know probably even if it was fairly you know entry level if you you know or intermediate if you said who here is an actor everyone probably maybe yeah. yeah possibly a lot of people a lot more um and so i think i think i see it as like a big i think it's just about me it's about creating work and sometimes that is as a writer and sometimes that's as a producer, and yeah. sometimes all those other things that's kind of necessary to run a theatre company. Um, and the kind of the writing, I think I see an evolution to it, and I've tried to sort of think about it, not strategically, but kind of set myself little goals, things that I want to accomplish, yeah. and that kind of makes it easier to see it is, if not a career, then in some. I know what I'm aiming towards. Yeah. There's lots going on for Cast Iron this May. We've got two 
fringe shows. Year Without Summer is about the writing of Frankenstein, which was published 200 years ago this year. Uh, you have Mary Shelley coming up with the idea, Lord Byron, who uh, encourages people in his holiday home to come up with ghost stories. And you have the one that we don't remember, Claire Claremont, Mary's half-sister, who was a lover of Byron and brought the people together. We don't really talk about her, we've kind of forgotten about her, but if it weren't for her, Mary might never have come up with Frankenstein. And that's at the Sweet Duke Box on the 21st to the 27th of May. Our second play in Brighton Fringe is One Woman Alien. One woman, one hour, one cult movie. And a cat. And a cat, yeah. yeah. Uh, Heather Rose Andrews, who was called Impossible to Forget by the list for the Edinburgh Fringe last year, joins us again for this uh, parody version of the 1979 horror sci-fi movie. It's um, had uh, lovely uh, responses and feedback from preview audiences, and we're genuinely very excited about it. Yeah. So that's on the 21st to the 27th of May. The same date as Year of Summer. Yeah, and it's also at the Sweet Duke Box. It is. You could do the marathon. What's that? Now, our friends at Pop Heart Productions also have a play on. It's called Blue Sky Thinking. Yeah. Their play is sandwiched between our play. So you've got in one venue, yes. the Sweet Jukebox, from the 21st to the 27th, it goes Year Without Summer. Blue Sky Thinking. One Woman Alien. See if you can pop down and do the marathon. If you could do all three on one night, then uh, I might... Uh, what would I give you? you? You might say I was going to say, I might say thank you. Yeah, we can't afford to buy you a drink. I was going to say I might buy you a drink, but you know. No. Now I'll probably I'll probably just uh, wave at you shyly and yeah. go thank you. Yeah. yeah. So if you're putting on a show at Brighton Fringe, if you're in any way involved in Brighton Fringe this year, or if you just want a chat, get in contact with us. We're at cast underscore iron at outlook.com and we would love to capture the mood of the fringe we'll be speaking to lots of performers lots of participants members of audiences people just generally hanging out in brighton for what is one of the best times of year it's the most wonderful time of the year and that'll be in your head now for two or three hours it's the most not the same you can't i, I think can't that's sing. a copyright issue no, no, I just can't think. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> so, should we get back to Tim? Yeah. Let's do it. One of the things you've spoken about before, because we've done our research, uh, <laughs> we, we've done some minimal research. <laughs> I looked on the internet. Um, uh, is this rather playful line that it seems to be like a, a contractual obligation that any new writing theatre has to put on a new writing night yeah. um, and where you're inviting work from people that you don't necessarily already know and the most recent one or the current one is Voices From Home um, and I quite like the um, the logic or the ethos or the thinking behind what you're hoping to achieve with that do you want to sort of say it in your words? Yeah, yeah it, it's sort of something that took a long time to develop um, and it is it's a new writing night and there's there's loads of new writing nights and I kind of felt 
like I didn't want to add just another one into the mix without being quite specific about again what we wanted to achieve from doing it and and who we were hopefully giving these opportunities to um but it felt really important and and Voices from Home is is a new writing night that is aimed specifically for writers from the southeast excluding London yeah. and the boroughs of London um so there's we started with the home counties in the first uh, edition which was last year at the old red lion um and we're sort of due to demand <laughs> kind of a lot of people sort of just saying well, why are you only focusing on the home counties i think the answer to that initially was that we wanted to really offer these writers something so we didn't just want to as has been my experience you know before is sort of you know, just take a script from a writer and then they have no involvement with that script yeah. or that piece of work. It doesn't, you know, they don't see the development. They might come to the to the performances and see the finished product. And then, you know, what are you kind of giving them? In, in my eyes, it, it was kept within the region because I'm a writer from Sussex and also because we wanted to involve them through, you know, project meetings. Yeah through the you know the dramaturgy sessions through rehearsals as well if they could um and so that that was the basis for it and also there's an element of sort of aftercare as well that we we work with the writers that end up doing voices from home for sort of six months um and offer them at, you know any kind of reading services yeah. or that that kind of thing so i wanted we, we i kind of basically wanted to look after the writers and i kind of flipped it and thought okay six years ago what would I what would have been useful sure, to me yeah and that was kind of eventually what kind of started this idea yeah. for, for Voices From Home. And there's a defining point in terms of because if you are living in Brighton and you're a writer or you're working in London there's sort of that invisible wall between the two and it's literally a bridge it's the idea that you can be a writer that's in the home counties or in, or in the south and this evening is specified for you but the end result is mm. still in London yeah and that that's something that I I just kind of I wouldn't say struggled with but I thought okay well this is still ending up being quite a London centric thing um but ultimately I th- you know ultimately there's there's ambitions to set up a network beyond london yeah but that does take a bit of time and you kind of you want to prove to people that how hopefully that it can be really successful and that there's good industry response which there has been already and so that's again but that's that is an obligation is that you don't want for me i don't want sort of fringe theater to die in in the home counties yeah. um and so i think it is important that that work then comes back out of London so that there is a strange thing as you said this bridge where you know you, you want those writers to have exposure in all of those areas but in this case it kind of felt like it, it was kind of the best thing that we could offer them yeah. at the moment and this is perhaps um, a somewhat contentious question in terms of when you're reading a script mm. um, from a writer that you don't know so it's the script itself is alien to you um this may be even a two-part question. What is going to hook you in the first page? You go, oh, I'm going to have fun with this. It's going to be a lovely script to read. And conversely, the contentious bit is, 
there might be occasionally times uh, when you're halfway through that first page you go, this is going to be a struggle. And there's something evident in that first half page. Um, I'm aware that could be belaboured because you obviously may not want to use actual examples. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any um, sort of... Yeah, I think it's, it does... There is a subjective element. I think even if... I don't know. Even if scripts are submitted anon- anonymously or if you don't know the writers, there's still... You're going to be bringing something of your... You know, what you're looking for, you know, in a script... To, you know to that read um and i think to me i think it's kind of le- it is partly led by my tastes and i don't always know what my tastes are you yeah. know I'm, I'm kind of waiting you know for a script to su- sort of surprise me mm. and actually maybe change my opinion about you know what i'd like um and i think in terms of sort of voices from home i think i was looking we set you know we set a brief for it but we tried to keep that brief fairly open um but i did sort of find myself sort of coming back to the scripts that were saying something very very present about today and about yeah. how we live on a sort of thematic level that was kind of what i was looking for but then i i think that i was i'm also really drawn to just the rhythm of dialogue yeah if there's no sort of rhythm or if it ke- keeps kind of getting broken up by sort of unnecessary sort of stage directions, yeah. then I, that's for me is something that I, I struggle to read yeah. it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's quite a general answer. No, that's fair enough because I'm aware how problematic yeah. uh, that, that can be. Um, in terms of, you know, writers that um, uh, even for stage or screen that our listeners might be familiar with because uh, they've seen them on screen or whatever uh but you've spoken often about the rhythm of dialogue um are there writers and creators that we've heard of that you are particularly fond of or do you avoid copying yeah <laughs> um from stage or screen yeah or, both, um, indeed both yes i think wow i think it is yeah it's kind of a separate thing for me i think yeah stage i'm very much more in the rhythm of stage speak than I am sort of TV dialogue because t- you know t- writing TV I found quite frustrating because you're constantly having to stop to you know the dialogue's quite minimal yeah. there is obviously the great writers there's, there is that rhythm to the dialogue but the actual writing process I find kind of more laboured yeah. because you you know you're having to describe all these other elements and I think so we yeah with I think Duncan McMillan is someone who yeah. Uh, you know, I think he's a fantastic writer. I think Kate Tempest is a fantastic writer, and, and they both have a clearly defined rhythm. Yeah. And also, I think I quite like the fact that you know, like not using any stage directions. I think it for me, it's always slowed that process down. Um, and obviously, action's really important, but for me, it's just kind of getting that that rhythm down on the page. Yeah. Um, I mean, Pinter, obviously, you know, as you mentioned earlier, is yeah. kind of, was was an early inspiration and I think is, I don't know, for, for quite a lot of writers, I would imagine. And so starting out, I think I just tried to write, you know, a Pinter play. Yeah. And it was these kind of beats that yeah. were happening all the time. And then, you know, we came to sort of rehearsing something like that and you're thinking, this doesn't really work, you know. Yeah. It's kind of, I can't write like that, you know, I have to sort of become my own. Find your, find your own voice. Find your voice, yeah. Um, 
How about for you? Because I'm, I'm interested in that. Is it, oh, is dear God. I, you know what? I don't know. Uh, I, I, I can dish it. I can't take it. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that I am also very fascinated by, by dialogue, I'm, um, which we should acknowledge sounds like a rather odd thing for writers to say because, of course, why wouldn't we be? Yeah. Uh, it, it's our uh, meat and potatoes. Um, I'm, but there is certainly, even in modern day sort of uh, plays that are sometimes dialogue perhaps deliberately or accidentally that doesn't it sounds unreal you sometimes think I'm not sure the characters speak like that mm-hmm. I'm quite fond of when conversations clash against one another or a, a, a conversational gambit gets abandoned because the characters get distracted by something else um, which can be fascinating or willful misunderstandings or accidental misunderstandings um so there's an element of that that i'm very fond of michelle did you enjoy um supporting local fringe theater i do does it give you like a warm glowing side it does and you get to see new writing you yeah. get to see amazing productions you get to be at the start of stuff which is always good, no fear of missing out. But Michelle, what if you do miss out? What if you just don't have the time? Because you're so busy supporting local fringe theatre, you mm. can't actually physically be at every single show that you'd want to be. You can't be a dramaturg for every single rehearsal process that you'd want to be. Are, are there any other ways that you know spring to your mind about how you can support a local fringe theatre? I love this this new take on advertising that we're doing. It's magnificent. Well, Andrew. Uh, you could support Cast Iron Theatre. Yes. Shall I tell you about that? Tell me, please. <laughs> you could join the Cast Iron Foundry. What is the Cast Iron Foundry, Michelle? Well, Andrew, it is a group of people who support Cast Iron Theatre by paying £36 a year, that equates to, do your maths in your head, 36 divided by 12, Three. £3 a month. Yeah. You pay it all up front, yeah. £36. For that, you will get two complimentary tickets to any Cast Iron Theatre production within that year. Check. A ticket to a acting, directing or writing workshop from Cast Iron Theatre. Check. A chance to mingle with other Cast Iron Foundry members at the Cast Iron Foundry party later this year. Check it, check it, check it, check it, check <laughs> That's we've, adorable. We've already, that's the value of the, of the uh, membership right there. Way over, way over, yeah, yeah. way over. It's, it's terrible marketing, but that's not all, Andrew. What else is there, Michelle? There is, Andrew. A loyal car. <laughs> no, no, you don't get Andrew. He's worth much less than thirty-six pounds. <laughs> you get a loyalty card, Andrew. Fantastic. It's got, you know, like those cards that you get where you buy coffee. Yeah. It's like that, but instead of buying a coffee yeah. and getting a stamp and then yeah. just getting a free coffee at the end, which is nice, with this card you get it stamped by us. Yes at the end of every show and then when you fill up your card you get another complimentary ticket amazing it is amazing 
So that's one way to support us. It's Cast Iron Foundry, which we you yeah. can find the details for on the Cast Iron website. Yeah, which is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Yeah. What and, else? Well, that you can become a patron. Oh, okay, go on. Um, by signing up to become a patron, you just directly support this podcast. You help us get better equipment. You help us expand what we do and celebrate local artists and um, theatre making in general, local creative businesses. So if you want to be a patron, Google Patreon, Cast Iron Theatre, and you'll find our details. Beautiful. If you are a Brighton business... Yeah. Do get in touch with us because there are ways to become a sponsor of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Our listeners are fascinating, wonderful and great. And you can have a chance to get your message to them. We're also offering um, a limited number of free advertising opportunities to local charities. Get in touch with us and we'll see if we can give you a shout out on the podcast. And that reminds us that um, for every show that we're doing throughout this year, if you want to bring in uh, for Brighton Food Bank, Mm -hmm. uh, non-perishable food, toiletries, sanitary products, please bring them along to any show that we're doing. I know that Brighton Food Bank will be delighted to have your donations. Yeah. So we're we're gearing up for the Brighton Fringe. Mm -hmm. We're gearing up. Officially, yet yeah, the brochure comes out soon. Yeah, we're we're coming out to the Edinburgh Fringe, <gasps> and there might be a couple of dates in between that and that that we can tell you about soon. Oh yes, it's very exciting. Exciting things happening for Cast Iron Theatre. Remember, if you do want to get involved, there's lots of writing opportunities, directing opportunities, performing opportunities with Cast Iron Theatre. Do pop down to our improvisation workshops. Get in touch on all the social media. Just wave at us furiously and tell us you'd like to be involved. Shall we get back to the show? Let's listen to Tim. You've spoken about uh, that ultimately you're quite a, you're quite a swift writer. You, you sort of get it done, but that idea might be percolating for a while. Mm. Um, so let's talk about drafts. How many drafts do you go through? Um, and are they complete drafts? Do you sort of like start the second draft when you're <laughs> almost finished the first one? Oh, I do. I do. Or I sort of say, okay, let me think of the last play. Maybe two or three. Yeah. And then tends to be production. Yeah. And that, I won't change it much after that. So I suppose, probably, I don't know, other writers I know might draft more than that. I think that's because... I tried to get the first draft. That first draft probably isn't actually a first draft. Yeah, I suppose draft zero is what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of it's as fully realised as I as I'd want it to be. So I'll keep sort of chopping and changing, and then that could that draft zero be produced with no embarrassment to you? Um, I think it could. I think it could, but I think it's not the it's not the things that would embarrass me. It's that. I think structurally it wouldn't work. Yeah. It's more the the structure that I'm tweaking to make sure that 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 there's that through line. And so I found this really early on with when I was sort of drafting is that you can throw kind of too many ideas yeah. into a play, and you can go off on tangents and you th- and then you know you, you don't want to cut them because you yeah. think well this is this was a great it's vital this was a great that vital thing. Wearing a red jumper, they have to be wearing yeah. a red jumper. And, and 
you know that that I sort of streamlining is kind of good so I suppose I'm stream streamlining the structure through the process of that first draft yeah essentially so you were talking when I said that uh, you you thought oh the, the last play you'd written mm. you had that set in your head as an example so let's talk about the last play that you were written what was that uh, that was um, Adam and Eve yeah a play called Adam and Eve um which is a kind of a, a modern day Genesis story. Yeah. It's it's kind of bringing that, that the biblical tale to sort of 21st century, 2018, um, but not sort of, not following that original story too closely. It's kind of, there's definitely an element of, you know, I've made my own choices yeah. through updating it as well. So, so the, the Adam and Eve um, story is a starting point. Yeah. Is it literally a two-hander? It's it's a three. Yeah. Uh, it's a three hander. So it's it is about a young couple who um decide to leave the city, um, and move to the countryside, to kind of find their Garden of Eden. Yeah. And and they're sort of put off by the rising costs of the city, but you know there's there's also this struggle. I think I don't know. I was kind of attracted to this idea of that there is this kind of thing. People reach a reach a certain age maybe, and then they kind of leave the city. And they get more rural, and I, growing up in a rural, I've always really resented the rural, and I've yeah. always thought, why would you want to do that? Um, so I was kind of interested in this idea, um, and so there's a school teacher which is Adam, and an estate agent which is Eve, um, and they move, um, and basically there's a third character which is a student of Adam's, who kind of is disruptive, shall yeah. we say? Okay. But that's a, like a, a third act reveal type thing. Um, I think, yeah. What could I say? She, I, I, no, I can say because it's 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 kind of out there. Is that she she acute she makes some accusations yeah. against against Adam, um, and that kind of makes uh, Adam and Eve question kind of how well they know each other, um, again, which kind of alludes to that thing of you know. You can know someone for a long period of time. You can have lots of conversations, but actually, how much do you know about what is going on underneath? Yeah, and we've um, we're talking about the city and the rising cost of the city, mm-hmm. um, and Adam and Eve moving out of the city. Uh, but actually, we we want to get Adam and Eve back into London. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're hoping to. How's that for yeah. a segue? Oh, um, that was impressive. <laughs> uh, it would have been if I hadn't lamp traded it. <laughs> we want to get Adam and Eve. Uh, to London for yeah. a few dates. Uh, when are you hoping for? Um, so the there is so there's been a, a yeah previous show and there's the there's a transfer next month to the Hope Theatre. Yeah. Um, which is a three week three week run, uh, May the twenty second to the 9th of June. Yeah. So that is kind of that's kind of going on at the moment. All yeah. the sort of pre, pre stuff, pre preparation. Cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, we're really excited about that actually to be off, to be offered that kind of, that three week run, is it, it's kind of different. It is very different to the shorter runs, um, and you know we're kind of approaching it quite differently. Yeah, what what, what is the difference between like a, a one night or a three night run and a three week run? Is it literally just that it's longer, or is your <laughs> or is your game plan different? It. It's different, yeah. It's not just longer. I think it's yeah. It's it's kind of. I think there's there's a level of attention you have to give it. You kind of have to give it your full focus, which of course you could yeah you could say for a three day, but you have to 
put more energy into it and you have to be prepared for the play to evolve over those three weeks because it's something that Edinburgh aside where where the four weeks is kind of kind of standard not many writers kind of get that so you, you kind of and and you know there's a lot about you know the sort of learning process as a writer where you want to see your work in front of an audience yes but then if you see it for three nights then you know how much can the play kind of or the performances evolve through that sort of shorter process even with a great director and a great cast it might be that they on night four and you go oh I've worked out what the play's about now yeah completely discovering it for the first time you learn a lot and that's why it was really useful for us to do a one week run previously and and take some of those lessons um, and what we learn and then you find you know it's really interesting what people say and that's the whole for me it's the whole point of wanting to be a playwright because you never know what how people are going to respond to the work so I, I kind of learned a lot about my own play yeah. from hearing about what they thought and thinking oh yeah do I, you know did I need to do that I'd, sure yeah. I'll, t- I'll say yes if you yeah. liked it but um... <laughs> <laughs> so that's what my own plays announced yeah it's, it's interesting um, have you been at the Hope before uh, no <laughs> I, I've seen first some, time yeah first time um, and we're yeah it's, it's a really interesting space they actually they don't let you present work end on Okay. It's it's pretty much so they, they they want you to be really theatrical, but not in the sense of staging work end on, and it's kind of it's a lovely intimate sort of pub theatre space, yeah. which actually suits the the play perfectly well because you you know for us we're wanting to bring the audience kind of right into that yeah. the world of Adam and Eve, and so they kind of I don't want to say that there's a tension to it and sure. then there's a drama and it kind of twists and turns and they're going to be right right there kind yeah. of alongside them there's not going to be sort of any hiding yeah no and you're hoping um to raise some funds to get you up to london you're, yeah there's a crowdfunder going on at the moment we do yeah we've got a crowdfunder which is currently live which is going until i think it's the 8th of may yeah and so that is just to kind of that that final kind of final bit so we've done We've done the work to kind of fundraise for, if I'd say around sort of seventy five percent of yeah. the total budget, <clears throat> and then this is the the kind of the last bit of money. So we're yeah we're raising um, our targets two thousand pounds. Yeah, and there's two weeks to run almost on that. So yeah, if anyone sort of wants to to sort of learn more, you can sort of check out on our um, social media accounts. Yes, yeah. um, and you can go to the fringe. Fringe Funder website, which is the platform we're using, and it's got a lot more information on there. Yeah. And one of those awkward videos where you kind of fantastic try to describe the project. You we're know, loving the awkward like, videos. No, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, video. you you're on you're on Twitter, you're on mm. um, Facebook, and all manner of places. And I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to get a um, a link to the crowdfunder in yeah. the blurb of which Alison will have found this podcast. So it should all be accessy yeah. yeah. and straightforward you have you had your work in london before however you've been at the king's head yeah how's that uh the king king's head is amazing i have to say it's it's a, just a brilliant brilliant theater it's a great group of people running the theater who have amazing values about how you know fringe work should be done um and it's it's a great space great location i love i love islington and that was a bit of um, 
that was kind of our first London show. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, but it's it's what I'd like to remember as <laughs> as the first show. But yeah, let's forget about the others. Um, I'm so engaged and interested <laughs> by that little conversational call attack. Um, I yeah. So there were things that were learned, and anyway, this <laughs> they, they actually came to see us at the Brighton Fringe. Um, what would have been maybe our third fringe. Um, and the yeah, the artistic director of the King's Head, Adam, um, came down um, and saw our show Crushed, which won uh, an award at the Fringe a couple of years ago. And he kind of, they saw it and really liked it. And they gave us that. It's kind of what I think a lot of companies are dreaming for, which is just like that direct transfer. Sure. You know, that opportunity just to someone to say, Let, well, let's go, let's, let's take this to London. Um, and so that was that was amazing. That was really gratifying to have that experience of taking that show, transferring that show to London. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of exciting things happening with the King's Head in that they're moving to a new space, yes. custom yeah. built space, so that they won't be the longest running pub theatre in London anymore. Though it's not going to be a pub theatre, but I think they're quite. I think they they're showing a lot of leadership in that. Yeah. And they've actually been really supportive. So in, for Adam and Eve, actually, um, this this current run at the Hope Theatre, we have the two directors. So we have the director, who's Jennifer Davis, um, was a graduate of the King's Head Resident Director Scheme, which has been running, I think, for quite a few years. And I actually sort of met her as a result of crush transferring a couple of years ago and now it's kind of gone full circle to where you know we come back 2018 and she's directing the show and and they've been very supportive in also um giving us one of their current resident um i can't remember what they call it now resident trainee directors um is going to assist on the show so that so there's i mean that helps actually you know it's very easy i think for me, for for people to maybe look at putting on shows and just the financials, but in kind support or or other help, other forms of help is yeah. as important. I think. So you are you know, the one of the co-founders of Broken Silence, and because you yourself are a writer, and one of the ethos of Broken Silence was to be led by the writers. Mm. How does that translate into a day-to-day relationship with Broken Silence if you are... Because you haven't mentioned, I'm reading between the lines, you haven't mentioned for yourself directing, for instance, or pushing forward the idea of Broken Silence in that way. And we often think of, which is, I guess, part of the point of uh, Broken Silence, we often think of the writer being surprisingly disempowered in terms of whatever else happens to get a play on I imagine it might be a, an overly not to say complicated relationship but sometimes a confusing relationship with indeed yourself in terms of <laughs> how you place yourself when you are pushing your own play yeah it is um, and I think that's, that's there's a lot to that question okay. I don't even know where to start um, but I'll give it a go I think so I produce every show um, but as you said, it's a writer-led company. Yeah. Um, so, I, I in terms of the current show, I don't see myself as the writer anymore. Yeah. I'm not the writer. I wrote that play two years ago, sure. 
and now I'm just the producer, and so I can I can answer questions as the writer, but it's kind of stopped. You know, it doesn't. It's not important now, um, in terms of the production. But for other shows, I think they've always been led by the writer in terms of that. That'll be the starting point. It will be Paul, um, sort of saying, I you know I've got this script. You know, can you read it? And and we'll have a discussion, and then also, you know, there there'll be that you know, it will lead to the point where let's put let's put the script on, let's just yeah. put the play on. And there's other scripts we have in development at the moment. So we're working with two two writers at the moment. One is is very close to being um sort of staged and we've got a few offers programming wise to put that on. Yeah. And again it's kind of the writers you know, initially it's me reading the script, yeah. I suppose, to answer that kind of part of the question is a writer, someone I know, or maybe someone I don't know, sending me a script and saying, you know, what do you think of this? Yeah. Is this something that you'd like to work on? And then if it is, then it's, you know, taking it a bit further, but it, it does come from the writer, which as you said, as you said, is maybe kind of a rarity. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but, but it's kind of, and in terms of the hierarchy of, of, of what we do, the kind of the other people in the company, it's always kind of, project led so it's not a case of all eight of us always working on every show yeah it's not necessarily the best thing for every show for that to be the case and also people have a lot of other things going yeah. on um so it's kind of it works like that it's project led and writer led that makes sense yeah does it it does uh Despite the expression on your face, <laughs> it does make Pain sense. Expression. You, you um, obviously you working Fringe Theatre, which is a perhaps a slightly different thing from the Brighton Fringe or the Edinburgh Fringe because they are different beasts. Um, so I guess I want to ask a second question first. What what is to you the Brighton and the Edinburgh Fringe? What's the purpose? What's why do they exist, or at least why do they exist for you? They, firstly, I think they're very different beasts. Mm-hmm. I think they, we're kind of lucky as a Brighton-based theatre company to have the Brighton Fringe right on the doorstep in the same way that people in who live in Edinburgh or nearby are quite lucky to have that right yeah. there. Um, and, and it does present kind of, in terms of the Brighton Fringe, um, a way of presenting work um, fairly easily and quickly and it's always kind of I think both the fringes but more so the Brighton fringe I'd say is just a great testing ground for new work yeah and especially with the shorter runs at the Brighton fringe kind of typically you know three three days to a week you know you can test that work it doesn't feel like there's a the glare of the industry on you yeah so you can make mistakes and and you can kind of improve a show it to the point where it could have a longer run. Yeah. And also it's it's great to see how much the Brighton Fringe has developed in say I think I started you see about 10 years yeah. now. I've sort of been you know involved in it and it's it's grown hugely. Yeah, it has. And and that's fantastic for Brighton and for specifically for Brighton theatre makers. Um and I think Edinburgh is kind of it's gone it's kind of like Disneyland gone wrong it's <laughs> like it's kind of it's become 
Oh, I d- I, yeah, it's an, it's a really interesting one, Edinburgh. I feel like Edinburgh pro- definitely started off being that, what yeah. the Brighton Fringe is now. And now it's gone sort of completely way beyond. It's kind of like, yeah, it's off the chain. It's yeah. just kind of, it's mad. It is mad. and It's terrifying to think that in about 20 years' time, there'll be artists and creatives going... Do you remember when the the fringe was small back in twenty eighteen, <laughs> uh, when when you just you you knew other people and it was about their yeah. work? It wasn't about money making because oh, yeah. presumably it's. I can't particularly imagine. You normally when things are getting bigger and bigger, you sort of you imagine there'll be a moment where it will burst mm. and collapse because it can't maintain itself. Well, I think the Edinburgh fringe. It's just going to get bigger and bigger, surely. Yeah, I, I think. I don't know how I think I don't want to say too much on this because I know you're taking your sh- two shows <laughs> to Edinburgh but I've had lots of different experiences to the Edinburgh Fringe yeah. and I think I think it's something that you need to be clear about what you want to achieve out yeah. of it now you know that's probably a good general thing to know <laughs> but yeah, um, anyway and I think that even if you don't achieve it, it doesn't matter. But yeah. I think you should go in there with that in mind, not you, like any you any did, company. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I don't know how much Edinburgh serves the early career artists now. Brighton Fringe, in my opinion, does. Whereas Edinburgh, I think, you know, I was having this discussion with uh, an artist director of a theatre in London and his, his kind of advice was, you don't want to go up there now as an unknown. You know, maybe yeah. maybe twenty years ago, you know, with your first show, you know, maybe twenty years ago, yeah, you could get discovered. Yeah. And now I think you you want to have some momentum before you go there. Yeah. Doesn't mean everyone has to know about you, but maybe the show or the writer or you you basically, as you kind of said, it's kind of a commercial thing now. Yeah. So you need something to kind of sell that show in Edinburgh to make it stand out from the ridiculous amount of shows there are. I'm always concerned about you know the shows that might be like a, a two-hander from America that are bringing over a, a piece of work that, crucially, is not a new piece of work. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, maybe a Pinter and Aaron Sorkin sort of script that's already it's a familiar piece, but being done by two new actors coming over for four days from mm-hmm. America. I always am terrified that they'll get no audiences at all and then go back home again after four days, having yeah. had nobody through the door. Yeah, and also conversely that, that you know, a, a play that's really well known, you know, a Shakespeare could get really good audiences, but, you know, it's maybe, you know, why is it kind of there? Yeah. Where it was a really great piece of new writing, you know, by an emerging playwright, could go unseen, you know, and that I think one of the first time I did it, Edinburgh as an actor was 2009 and we played at the Underbelly yeah great venue um prime kind of slot and and we were told fairly early on that the the average audience was about four people yeah. that was that was what we could expect um yeah that the, some of the statistics are are scary and as I said I think it's having clarity about what you want to do. It's fine to play to four people. There's yeah. no shame in that. It doesn't matter. You're presenting your work. Um, but, you know, what ultimately, apart from that, are you trying to kind of get out of it? How yeah. are you going to develop as an artist through that? So let's ask the second question. <laughs> well, let's, so let's ask the first question now, uh, which is, 
you're working in fringe theatre, as opposed to Edinburgh or Brighton, what for you is fringe theatre? Yeah, it fringe theatre is, I I think, I. It's got quite a London focus outside of the fringe. There, there is I I kind of relate to it as being quite London focused, yeah. and I kind of see it as the off West End scene. But essentially, it's it's the work that's going on that's not you know mainstream. Yeah. Um. But I think there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of industry debate about that at the moment mm-hmm. you know what fringe theatre is whether people creatives are being treated fairly on the fringe yeah and and i think you know and a lot of people questioning is you know where's the line of profession you know is it professional theatre sure. and 100 percent is in my opinion um and so i think again it comes back to kind of it's a way in to the industry yeah it can become kind of a place where maybe some artists could get stuck yeah or maybe disheartened by the experiences they're having but actually again i think if you're kind of clear of purpose and you take it for kind of what it is it's just a a great place to do work and the most important thing i've learned from from working on the fringe is just to to be working with people that you enjoy spending time with because otherwise it's it's not so not so fun in a writing room or a, a rehearsal room uh what sort of people do you enjoy spending time with um i think people that don't take themselves too seriously yeah um i i think is a good good rule and nice people like just good <laughs> just kind of good people yeah. not people that aren't gonna you know kind of stab you in the back it's a really or... underestimated thing uh obviously the the division between nice and stabbing you in the back that's quite a wide divide <laughs> but yes. we should acknowledge that being nice is vastly underrated we don't talk about that enough and I think nice is a seems to be a bit of a, a grey unsexy word where actually it's phenomenally important yeah and it's really appreciated you know and it you know and I think you know I've found is that we we work with a lot of the same people yeah. you know act, actor acting wise actors we invite them back because they're great to work with Um, and others you might not Um, and it is it does make all the difference absolutely Um, we're we're hurtling towards the end of our little chat and so I want to throw a couple of questions at you that we often ask our podcast people Um, when you're sort of um, on your first non-draft type thing and you're working on an idea and you may not be working at home or whatever you're hanging out in a cafe or a sort of coffee shop somewhere in Brighton. Um, where is there a shout out to a particular place? You think, oh, I, I enjoy, I like that vibe. I like hanging out there. Um, yeah, I I should say that I'm the like one of the world's biggest coffee snobs. Oh, okay. Like I'm really like. I'm, I'm so sorry that we've so, um, disappointed you tonight. So picky. No, I've got. I'm I'm going with tea. <laughs> you got to stick with a safe option. Yeah. If you're not sure, no. Um, and so I, I I go through phases. There's it's kind of sport for choice here. Um, so I, I, I do like small batch. Yeah. But I have a bone to pick with small batch, <laughs> <laughs> which is is the lack of latte art on the takeaway coffees. Oh wait, oh oh oh! That of all the bones you were gonna pick, yeah. I bet I didn't see that one coming. 
Um, what I can I use this as a bit of a you know go on rant of the way? No, it's just it's just so lazy. Oh okay. And it's meant to be like kind of cool, like hips to like. So, so, I'm yeah. pouring that in there, yeah. the milk, yeah. and I don't really care because the lid's going on. Yeah. But it actually affects the taste. It does. How so? <laughs> it okay. It it's kind of the the texture of the drink. Yeah. You kind of by pouring it in that lazy. Yeah. Kind of, you're not getting the right balance. I, I'm sort of doing this hand. I'm trying to demonstrate to you. You're, you're, you're inclining the hand <laughs> so, that holds a cup at a roughly seventy degree angle. Yeah, and then First, so you finish. have the espresso yes. at the bottom, and then you got the milk, which is if you pour it in slowly. Yes. Then you have that nice balance, like the you know. Uh, but if you chuck the milk in there, it's basically, I don't know what it is. So it, it's the same as you know somebody who doesn't know how to pour a pint of Guinness. Exactly. You know? When well, you said yeah. latte art, I, I I thought that you meant sometimes when they have the um, silver motif thing and they stick with chocolate yeah. sprinkles and they, they create images. No, that takes no skill. No. No, latte art is the one where they're kind of pouring the milk slowly to yeah. get the leaf or the heart. Yes. Or occasionally the thing that looks like a, um, a phallic symbol, which I'm always disturbed by. Yeah. 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 I'm not sure it's what quest- that means. Questionable. It is questionable. Um, but I do, I've just discovered uh, Black Mocha. Yes. Which is good. It's really good. Yeah, yeah that's my shout out. That's a shout it's out. you hang. Black Mocha. Another question we uh, tend to ask is, um, is there, because you know, there's this delightful podcast, but is there, mm. are there other podcasts that you listen to? Or indeed, films that you're watching at the moment, or box sets that you're demolishing, or books or plays that you're reading oh, that you want to go, wow. you know what, more people should know about this. Um... I would say there's a few podcasts that are all theatre related. Yeah. So I listen to to your fantastic podcast quite a lot. Um, and I also listen to one called the London Fringe podcast yeah. uh, run by a guy called Tom, which is really useful um, in terms of hearing about other people's experiences. Because yeah. that's something you kind of don't really get. It's kind of... Well, you know, how did you stage that show? You know, how sure. did you go about that? And that's useful. And then I just finished watching all the BBC Agatha Christie. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's, still on, that's still on my list. I, I adored, oh, um, yeah. and then there were none. Yeah. Back. And I quite enjoyed um, Witness for the Prosecution. Yeah, Witness uh, the Prosecution. Which is a more difficult thing to, to yeah. play out, but I still quite enjoyed what she did with it, Sarah Phelps. But um, I haven't yet seen... Oh, so what is the prosecution was one that happened this time round? No, that was what's the new one? Um, I think. Oh, ordeal by Edith. That's the one. Exactly. So yeah, I I I enjoyed um, for the prosecution, yeah. uh, although it's a more difficult thing to translate to screen. Yeah. I've not yet seen Ordeal by Innocence. Yeah, she she's an amazing writer, and yeah. the, the TV adaptations. I I think there's a lot to learn about like plot and stuff through Agatha Christie. Yeah, because she's someone. We kind of spoke a bit earlier about like weaving bits into the story. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they're, they're all murder mysteries. But yeah. yeah, but essentially, that's what you're doing as a writer of any kind of medium. Yeah. You're kind of doing that. And so there's, yeah. And I never guessed them. Well, what's, quite interesting, what's quite interesting about Sarah Phelps, particularly my memory of um, And Then There Were None, in that if you were adapting something, it can sometimes be appropriate to have what might be viewed as a healthy lack of respect for the source material of not yeah. being constrained by exactly how the original piece appeared. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, and that's kind of, 
what I tried to do with Adam and Eve was kind of not in the same way, but sort of say, okay, that 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 was amazing. I can't yeah. recreate that exactly as it was. Why would I try to do that? Let's kind of say something new, but kind of still appreciate you know the beauty of that story. Yeah. Uh, and again, are there any books or plays that you're um, I plays. I I try to read a lot of plays. I just finished one. I'm not probably gonna remember. It's called Deposit. It was on at the Hampstead. I can't remember the the writer's name, but it was about these. It was kind of relevant to what you're talking about as well. It's these two couples that basically decide for a year they're gonna move into a kind of a studio flat. Yeah. So they can save <laughs> for the deposit. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you don't have to be a genius to just kind of see that it's Does not stuff going to so, Stuff goes wrong. They they might not like each other by the end of it, maybe. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Um, so, but it's still, I, I kind of, it, it did get me thinking about things. Hopefully, not in like too depressing a way, but yeah. I was kind of thinking, oh God, yeah. Oh no. Yeah, Deposit itself is an interesting title in terms of, I mean, that seems to be fairly linear as to what that word might entail. I, I was very fond of a title from so the TV plays a few years back called Human Remains, uh, which appear to have at least a double meaning to it. How important are titles for you, or sometimes are they just a means to an end? I think... I, I I went through I think the first four plays I wrote were single word titles mm. and I don't know if I don't know how deliberate it, it was kind of deliberate because for a while they were going A B C D, <laughs> um, but I think only you got the twenty sixth play. <laughs> I know in that cycle. I, how well remembered I wouldn't be in a local um, newspaper. Um, I think that there was an element of not wanting to give too much away. Yeah. As you said, there can be multiple meanings. Um, to those to those kind of single words and then with the with Adam and Eve it was I mean there's obvious reasons for doing it but what I kind of wanted to do was to present what people think is a really familiar story so I guess you are you're already thinking about engaging the audience's expectations you're saying you're going to come and see this show you think you know that what it's about and actually it's not going to be about that at all we're going to try and subvert what you're going in to see and and as a theatre maker that is something that I'm really drawn to is setting people up not in a cruel way but but sort of thinking okay they're going to think it's going to go here but actually we're going to take it in this other direction Uh, and the last question we'd ask our guests uh, which as a regular listener to the podcast Mm. you may already know um, but still may not be prepared for (laughs) um, is uh, when you were younger, when you were a kid, did you invent something that you did nothing oh, with and then somebody else's invent? You know, you had the name Tim Cook, come on. <laughs> uh, or did you have an idea for that, um, that great play at the National that um, actually somebody else wrote? You know, even though I, I should have written this one down because I knew that it was coming yeah. and, I, and every time I hear someone answer this question, I, I start thinking, what did I invent? And I, don't, I don't have it. I don't have one. That's actually quite an okay answer, really. So there's no sense of so it's so disappointing. Well, that's that's good thing. All, all, all your ideas are your own. Maybe that's well, yeah. Maybe that's why I, stri- I strive for originality. Yeah. Because I've never been able to produce, you know, something something that 
significant. What a wonderful epitaph to end <laughs> our conversation on. Um, so we are, um, you're going to be um, up at the Hope Theatre mm. uh, in uh, end of May to um, start of June. Uh, those dates again? Yeah, uh, 22nd of May to the 9th of June at 745 uh, Tuesday to Saturday. Yeah, and that's uh, with with Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve, yeah. And uh, if people would like to sort of um, make that journey up a bit more easier, they can find the details for the crowdfunder uh, online through all your social media. Yeah, through all our through, through all the Broken Silence uh, social media, and I think yeah, it would be it would be very much appreciated, and we'd we'd love to see some Brighton sort of people at the show as well. Beautiful. I appreciate it's a bit of a trip, but I'll be there every night. I'll buy you a drink. And there we go. Um, here's a question I'm not entirely convinced we've ever asked anybody, although it's quite a benign question. What's next? He, next mm. is, it could be anything. It's kind of, there's lots of projects bubbling away. There's the two two writers that we're working with, um, two female writers, which I'm really excited about, um, Hattie Jones and... Uh, young writer-in-residence, Ella Dorman-Gadge, who um, we're working on plays with them uh, to stage them sort of later this year and into next year. Um, there's the next edition of Voices from Home, which is going to be in July. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of... There's quite a few things, and then I have to kind of figure out whether I can write a play between those things, or maybe not. Do you have um, either firmly or very vaguely do you have an expectation of yourself of how many hours you're going to produce a year in terms of writing for your own writing yeah um, in terms of writing yeah i no i i try to write one play a year yeah um but for me to get to the end point of a play i have to really really care about that idea yeah so yeah, I, I think I find writing dialogue fairly easy. So I'm sure I could write more prolifically. But I kind of, if I don't care that much about the idea, then I'm not going to see it through. Yeah. I'll lose interest halfway through. So I suppose the most important thing is is probably to write, as for me as a writer, is, is to get something written this year. But I'm not going to force that, no. to be honest. If, if, if that idea of that bit of inspiration kind of, isn't there then I'm not going to try and try and force it I think I'm I'm sort of becoming more and more interested in other people's stories yeah. and supporting other writers and directing other writers work yeah. increasingly so and so I don't know what that means for me as a writer but that's just kind of where I'm at at the moment and that's kind of what I'm passionate about after Adam and Eve and it means that uh, your own um Mac uh, computer, which can be replaced at any point soon yeah. uh, by uh, by lovely people from Apple. Um, the folders on that will perhaps be um, sometimes filled with um, half completed yeah. plays of excellent dialogue. It could, which it is kind could of how be. we came in on this conversation. Yeah, the dialogue and the rhythm of it, and I think I I did exactly that. I I had a window at the beginning of this year. I had maybe two months, and I thought I'm gonna just write play. Yeah, no problem. I started writing three different plays to see which one maybe I'd, I'd like to develop and I didn't like any of them and so I've just left them. Um, but I think... If you 
Yeah. I, this is well, I'm now going past the point where I actually wanted to wind up, but now I'm fascinated by that. If those, because sometimes um, at Cast Iron, we get um, writers who we're instinctively quite excited about by even if we haven't actually seen their writing yet, just in conversation. Mm. And all, actually, they they're, they're good at storytelling just mm. verbally. We like to see their work, and we have conversations with them. And sometimes they'll say, "Oh, actually, I've always wanted to write, but I'm not very good." And so we sort of gently nudge them and go, "Well, you know, try something out." And they'll try something out, literally uh, in that tone. And what they send us, we actually quite like, and we'll go ahead with that. Um, even if what they sent us at that point is an undeveloped, unfinished mm-hmm. idea. So, Tim Cook of Broken Science Theatre. If you got three scripts in your inbox tomorrow from various different free scripts mm. from Tim Cook with the three uncomplete scripts, would you, <laughs> as a director at Broken Science, go, actually, that one you could finish? Uh, and remember, you're not talking to yourself, you're talking to this other guy. Yeah, are there, that's a really interesting way of, of twisting it. Yeah, are there any of those three scripts that you'd actually encourage Tim Cook to consider having another stab at? Uh, yes, that that is. I'm sort of trying to think about them. Um, as you sort of said that, yeah, that there's one actually. There's one that I'd say, okay, there's something interesting in that. Um, you should develop that more yeah. because it's uh, it's different to other things yeah. that I'm reading at the moment. Um, but interestingly, it's the one I kind of run out of steam quickest with. Yeah. And I think that's maybe actually we were talking about procrastinating and like the amount of time you need to think about a play before you can write it. It might have been a case of I hadn't had enough time to really think about where I wanted to take that play, um, that particular piece. And so I thought at the time, like, I'm not going to force this. I think there is an interesting thing. I don't know if you how you find it, but in how much he's kind of forcing it because you do there is an element of you you know you need to set yourself deadlines you yeah. need to like to do it but then you know if you can't you need to care as well yeah I think sometimes on particularly more prose I think than plays I've found the need to do something of a hack job on those three pages because I need to get to that plot point and I have a fair amount of confidence in myself that I'll be able to come back later and either delete it altogether or find a way of justifying that scene and making it work. Um, I think that probably is more difficult for me, at least, when writing for stage, um, because actually, um, largely, all the bits that are not dialogue aren't there, which is presumably why some writers um, do over-rely on stage directions, because Mm. those are the things that, when you're on that first or second draft of the zero draft, keep you afloat yeah I'm a, not entirely sure what it all it meant I think there's there's something about for me is like you want to be if it's the perfectionist and then what's the opposite end of that like the person that just writes and thinks their writing is always good but they're not kind of kind of checking it quality checking it yeah. they're just like this is incredible um, and then there's the perfectionist who kind of never writes who's kind of yeah. like we'll write a page and then we'll delete most of it they won't continue, they'll think, oh, this is just rubbish, like, get rid of this. And I think that, for me, like, you need to, for me, I'm trying to be in the middle point. Yeah. 
So I know I need to get it out and I don't want to try and be too much of a perfectionist or think that my own dialogue's great. Because yeah. neither's true, to be honest. So that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And so, see all of us. <laughs> uh, Tim Cook from Broken Silence Theatre. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. And edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Ebra Armand. Find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and our website, castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Thanks for listening.